Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planting or planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does the food come to the to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare. So people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This is the word of the Lord. We've said thanks be to God for each time that we've read this, these passages out of Ecclesiastes, and perhaps now is one of the most difficult times to celebrate this text, to say thank you to God for having just read this. If you're paying attention, there's a lot of despair there. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of injustice. And where is the hope? Well, this is a long passage, and there's a lot of different things happening in this passage, and it would take a number of hours to unfold all of it. But we're going to focus on a couple of things and hopefully at the end get to a place of redemption and of hope. And as we do that, would you, would you pray with me? Lord, we do, in fact, thank you for this book. We thank you for its rough edges. We thank you for the dark grace that we find in it. We thank you that in the search for wisdom, we hope that we might find you as the source of all wisdom. We have enormous longings. And we find ourselves constantly frustrated by what is open to us in this world. Might we consider that our longings point us beyond this world? And as we consider that, might we find you. Speak to us in our darkness. Speak to us in our joy. Speak to us in our questioning or in our confidence. And allow us through this time to see you in each of these places. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at our Presbytery meeting a few weeks ago, and if you're 
unfamiliar with Presbyterianism, our presbytery is the regional governing body. And one of the jobs that we have as a gathering of pastors is to interview and counsel and vet uh, future ministers. And so this happens in a long, drawn-out process. Uh, but the first is an interview and hearing their story, hearing the, their spiritual background and hearing about their spiritual journey. And there was a, a young guy that was sharing about his spiritual journey who was about to begin pursuing the ordination process. And turns out that he grew up in the church, but during college, he walked away from Christianity and began to deal with these great doubts about reality and about who God was and if he exists. And for many years, he was kind of somewhere on the agnostic, atheistic spectrum. Now, our region is very uh, famous for the nuns, those that check the nun box on spiritual affiliation on the census form. But he was a dun. He was someone who had been a part of the church and now wants nothing at all to do with it, or did at that time. But for some reason, many years after walking away from the faith and having these enormous doubts, he picked up the Bible and started reading Ecclesiastes. If you're starting to read the Bible for the very first time, few pastors would say, start with Ecclesiastes. They would say, go to the Gospels, pick up John, pick up Mark, Mark short, and go straight to Jesus. That would probably be the counsel. But he picked up one of the most challenging, despairing, and yes, skeptical books in the whole Bible. And he read it over and over. And unlike any other book he had read, it made sense of his personal experience. It made sense of his heartache. It made sense of his sin. It made sense of the world that he actually inhabited. And in Kohelet, he found a kindred spirit, a fellow traveler. Ecclesiastes helped him begin to doubt his doubts. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're searching for answers. You're considering whether Christianity makes sense, whether it might be able to make sense of your world and your experience. And I would submit that perhaps there's no better place to start than Ecclesiastes because it's written from the perspective of unbelief. It has chapter after chapter of questions to God of whether or not this life makes any sense at all. Now, Ecclesiastes is not laying out a positive defense of the faith, but helping us to doubt our doubts by poking holes in all of the promises that the world offers us, poking holes in the promises of everything under the sun. Now, Kohelet, if you haven't been with us, is the teacher there's a, a narrator that frames his search for wisdom in chapter 1 and 12, but Kohelet is the main person speaking, and he's our teacher, our professor, and he's on this quest to find wisdom, to make sense of the world that seems so random and so incoherent. And throughout his quest, he says that you and I, we're creatures who long for justice, we long for purpose, we long for lasting joy, and yet the pursuit of these virtues, of these values, is doomed to failure from the start because there's nothing in this world, nothing under the sun that can sustain these longings. And he makes this argument from the perspective, adopting this perspective of unbelief, that if the common destiny for all is death and nothing else, then here's the reality. Here's what you're actually dealing with. And he says we can't long for ultimate justice, for purpose, 
for meaning that transcends us, while at the same time saying this is all there is. The problem of injustice, the problem of evil, is usually cast upon the believer as a challenge to their belief. But I would submit that it's equally a problem for doubters. It's equally a problem for skeptics. Now, why is that? Well, let's look at the text. Verse 11, I have seen something else under the sun. This race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. This is a summary of what we see in the news each and every day. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy and how healthy, how good your HMO is or your medical insurance, how safe of a neighborhood you live in. Anyone can be touched by the random cruelty in our world. Maybe through great effort we hide from it for a while. Maybe through great fortune that we can avoid the destruction that Kohelet talks about. It doesn't come our way. You earn good money. You avoid any major illnesses. You start a company that you're proud of and that people celebrate and recognize you for. On the individual scale, life doesn't seem all that unjust at all. But, verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Everything they've done has vanished. And this moves past the random injustice that affects most, but not all, all the time, and into this realm of the absolute, universal, unavoidable injustice that happens to everyone. Kohelet says everyone is going to die, and that's actually an injustice. And it's an injustice that none of us can avoid. Death awaits everyone. And it's the great leveler of everyone's ambitions, everyone's achievements. Now, maybe you say, well, yeah, but I want to work for something that leaves a legacy. I want to leave my mark on the world. I want to make a change that outlasts me. Well, it will die too. (laughs) Sorry to tell you that. If you design a building... If you start a hospital, your name will live a little bit longer than everyone else's, but eventually the second law of thermodynamics always wins. Entropy always wins. Things fall apart. Everything breaks down. Your body, the building you designed, your house, your job, your family, even the sun. And if we avoid as a human race making our planet unlivable, if we avoid somehow not being hit by a gigantic asteroid, or, as my kids are more fearful of, a zombie apocalypse. If we avoid all of those things, at some point, the sun will burn up. The sun will go into a huge gas giant and consume the earth. What then of your legacy? Verse 3, the same destiny overtakes all. Good, bad, believer, unbeliever, those who love, those who hate. All their virtue, all their evil vanishes and is ultimately forgotten. So here's the problem that the Bible has with unbelief, and we should consider it. Why would you pursue injustice or pursue justice for others? Why would you pursue what we've agreed upon as a society is good? 
when it's just a social construction and everything that we do will ultimately vanish? Why not just pursue what you want? Why not get while the getting's good? If everything that you do will dissipate into cosmic forgottenness, why not just seek your own interest? It's a distressing thing to say in a very justice-oriented city like ours. Most people who live here in Portland, Christian or non, care about the problems of our city. They care about human trafficking and homelessness and hunger and sustainability, and they're motivated to do things about these problems. But if Portland, as we know it is, is the decidedly non-Christian city, it's the land of the nuns and the duns, why then should we care? Why then work for justice? Then Kohelet says something about dogs and lions, and it really makes no sense if you understand dogs from our perspective, because see, dogs in Portland are like children. No one here talks about being a dog owner. What are we? We're pet parents. We're pet parents. We're our dog's human. We're their counterpart. They're part of the family. And I thought all of this was silly until we adopted Stella. And notice I said adopted, not bought, not got. We adopted Stella into our family. But in the ancient world, dogs were not like this. Dogs were scavengers. Dogs were nuisances. Dogs were things that you avoided because they carried diseases like rats. And they were the lowest of the low. But lions, on the other hand, were regal creatures. They were noble. They were the greatest of all animals. But what does Kohelet say? Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. What's he saying? He's saying that it's better to be a scavenger, a liar, a cheat, and escape death, prolong life, than it is to be a noble person who dies. It's better to cheat your way to extend your life than it is to live for a noble cause and then die because of it. It's not worth it to live for nobility in the world as it appears to be. It's better to stay alive as a liar and a thief. If the world is all there is, then the person who dies for a noble cause isn't to be respected or lifted up. They simply cut short their life for nothing that will last. We love stories, however, of people who are willing to die for what they believe in, for what is right. People who are willing to die for justice. People who stand up for the cause of the civil rights of African Americans and are shot because of it. We celebrate those things. We laud MLK. People who spend their lives in the slums of India bringing food and hope to desperate people at every expense of themselves. We celebrate that. We think it's wonderful that someone would do that. But in Kohelet's mind, if this world is all there is, this makes no sense. And what does it tell us about ourselves, however, that we love stories like this, that we love self-sacrifice for a greater good, that that idea, that concept is something that we make movies about and we write stories about and we write songs about and we make art about? What does it tell us that if we are here by random chance and that one day we will vanish entirely, that we love those stories, that we want to live those stories? That's the rub. Why is the problem of evil? That's why the problem of evil is as much a problem for the unbeliever as the believer. 
If our worldview tells us that there's no such thing as ultimate justice and we still long for that very thing, couldn't we reason that we're made for a world in which those values and those virtues actually make sense? A world in which our desires for lasting justice are connected with its actual possibility. That everything that is important to us, that we give our lives to, isn't ultimately forgotten. That there's a reason that we dream these dreams. There's a reason that we have these longings. That they point to something that actually exists. Something that's eternal. Well, he says something interesting in verse 4. He says, anyone who is among the living has hope. It's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Anyone who is still alive has reason to hope. If you're still here and you're not dead yet, there is some reason to hope. Well, hope in what? Well, for the, what's been the main point of his observations? That all of our works are forgotten, that there's a cosmic forgottenness that we all inhabit. That's been his argument. That's his observation. So, Hope, then, would be the opposite, right? Hope would be something that transcends that, that turns that around. We've argued that Ecclesiastes is one of the youngest books in the Old Testament. That is, it was written towards the end of the compilation of the Old Testament, sort of as a a final coda for the Old Testament. Here's the end of it, and it sets us up for something new to happen. It's the conclusion of the story that opened up in Genesis, the first book of the Bible that looks at this problem that Kohelet is talking about, but from a different perspective. The writer of Genesis makes the same observations. We have longings that this world cannot meet. But what happened in Genesis that caused that? Humanity forgot God. That we forgot God and chose to go our own way. And in turning away from God, we've turned away from the only permanent, eternal thing. And in so doing, we've become temporary. We've become lost in the cosmos. Our longings become severed from their source and their solution. We have longings to work towards something that lasts forever, but we've chosen to disassociate from the one who is forever. You see, Genesis opens up the story by looking at the world, the same world that Kohelet looks at. Kohelet says meaningless. That's his perspective. Genesis says it's fallen. It's cursed. Not contradictory, but different perspectives on the same problem. But thankfully, Genesis opens up a story. Ecclesiastes perhaps closes it, but it's only closing part of it. It's only closing a chapter in the larger story of redemption. The story doesn't end in Ecclesiastes. It helps us to doubt our doubts, to despair of our forgottenness, so that we'll receive from God the end of that forgottenness. While we've forgotten God, He sends His Son Jesus to tell us that God hasn't forgotten us. Jesus was the one who worked the most good, who lived the most righteous. He leaves a legacy And what is that legacy? It's a cross. He leaves a legacy of dying on behalf of someone else. He experienced cosmic forgottenness on our behalf. The one whose life should matter, the one whose life shouldn't vanish, carries his own cross up a hill where he dies a criminal's death. And this is the ultimate challenge, not to the secularists, but to us, to the religious people. If we're part of 
this church because no matter how good you are, no matter how you posture yourself, no matter how you believe you exceed others, Jesus far exceeds you, and yet He goes to a cross to pay for your sin and your lack. That He dies a criminal's death on your behalf. That no matter how good you are, it doesn't measure up. That your only hope of leaving a legacy is to claim Jesus' legacy as your own. But also to the secularist who thinks that they can squeeze meaning out of this world, Jesus' life sort of undermines that as well because he lived a life of purity and purpose, and yet he was killed, and his legacy was having died for you, and yet you don't take hold of it. So either he didn't understand the way that the world actually works, he hadn't read Ecclesiastes, he was naive, and he pursued virtue only to die for it. In a closed system, this makes no sense, and it's the most tragic death that's ever happened. It would be meaningless in a closed system. And so no one should celebrate Jesus if that's the truth. No one would say, well, what a great teacher, what a great, wonderful person he was. Absolutely not. Madness to go to the cross in a closed system. Or the alternative would be that he took on the meaninglessness of our world, that he took on our forgottenness, that he carried that up the hill to the cross. And on himself, he took on our lack, our deficit, our sin. And his death was actually the answer to our longings. It pointed to the ultimate fulfillment of our longings. He got cosmic forgottenness so that you can be remembered. And all of the violence and the despair of this world fell upon him as he opened up the pathway to another world where all of our longings make sense, where all of our longings will be finally fulfilled because, friends, you were made for another world. There is hope because Ecclesiastes isn't the end of the story. And if you're among the living, if you're not dead yet, then there is hope. Take hold of Him and let Him make sense of your experience. Let Him sustain your longings. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we wrap up our study of Ecclesiastes this morning and then on Ash Wednesday, that You would give us a sense of of climax and of completeness, that we would take some of the hard teachings of this book and carry them to You and look to You for answering our questions. Let us be courageous and bold as we seek answers in this world. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be our guide. And if there's anything that this book has taught us about you is that you don't mind our questions, that you even invite our doubts, that we can come to you wherever we are and not wait until we are where we want to be. Lord, I pray that we would do that And even as we confess our faith and come to the table, that we would come as people who are ready to receive your grace and ready to receive your answers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.